beloved congregation, we've labored for many moons uh, so far on the book of Romans, and we find ourselves closing in on the end of the 11th chapter, and that's worth noting because things change when we hit the Big 12, and you move from what, what is at least initially a doctrinal treatise, right? Paul's writing a letter full of doctrine, full of teaching, full of laboring theology and, and doctrine, things that most contemporary Christians despise and wouldn't even take into their mouths as far as words go. After all, doesn't doctrine divide? Yeah, yeah, sure it does. Everything divides. Wake up. Um, but doctrine is something that God's given us. He's given us teaching. He's given us to understand him so that in turn we can serve him. And when we get to chapter 12, we get into that service. We get into looking at the practical realities of the Christian life and, and, and so on that are built upon what is the Christian life and how we understand ourselves. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the actions come. And so God, in the, in the first 11 chapters here, is dealing with our hearts and our minds, our understandings, and, and, and molding us through our minds so that with our minds, as we see at the beginning uh, of, of chapter 12, uh, being before God and renewed, then we now get to live and serve God as those who have renewed minds in Christ Jesus. So we come to the end of chapter 11, and maybe something of a summary. If someone asks you, say, hey, could you summarize the book of Romans for me? Sounds like a licensure exam kind of question that you're guaranteed to get wrong. Uh, can you summarize the first 11 chapters, anyway, the doctrinal portion of, of, this, of this word, of this letter that God has given through the Apostle Paul to the Romans? It's not easy to do. But I think it's something Paul's doing here. As he especially comes into these last verses that we're reading about uh, you know, consigning all the disobedience to have mercy on all, and that of him and through him and to him are all things to his name be the glory, I think is, is a capstone and summary of these long chapters that we've worked through. And I don't, I don't want now to spend time going back to summarize them, I think, a little bit as we go in this sermon. And Lord willing, next week I'm going to just take that last verse. Of him and through him and to him being what I think is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Uh, telling us what it's all about. What God's doing and then how all these other things fit into what God's doing. And everything comes from God, it exists by God, and is for God and uh, unto him as well. It's all about God. It's all about God. He's, he's made us to glorify himself. We are in relationship, in saving a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, so that God should be glorified. Are we are we bettered by that? Are we built up by that? You better believe it. When God brings us into Himself, into His glory, that makes us better. That builds us. It doesn't build Him at all. God derives nothing, zero, because He is absolutely perfect and unchanging. We don't add anything to Him. We just reflect the glory of the God who is not only kind to all his creation, as we read in Psalm 145, but is particularly kind to sinners who rest and trust in the one he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should marvel at God, not only because he's the creator God, certainly that, but even more so because he is the redeeming one. He is the God who redeems and takes us out of our own sin and brings us into relationship with him and into righteousness because there is no relationship with God apart from righteousness, which is why there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. All the way back. And the blood that was shed is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his broken body, through his shed blood, we have 
Not only forgiveness of sins, but a relationship with God, eternal and forever. So summarize that. Right? Bring, bring all this, this stuff together. It's hard to do, and I think maybe one of the exercises in school that we had to do was write summaries. You read the paragraph or read this little story. Okay, now go ahead and summarize it. Right? Like, oh, uh, you know, don't want to leave out any pertinent details and all the things that go into writing summaries. Well, this isn't that kind of summary. It's more of a capstone. Uh, it's more of a capstone, and I want to think about with, in verses 30 through 36, um, which I'll read right now, God's gracious purposes, God's genuine inscrutability, and God's glorious ultimacy. So let me read these, these handful of verses here, starting at verse 30. For just as you, that is you Gentiles, is what he's talking to, just, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews, so they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul's, again, kind of pulling together what he's been talking about for at least the last chapter and actually longer, going back, certainly chapters 9, 10, and 11 hanging together, right, is is answering the question, well, what about Israel? Has the word of God failed? Did the the, the nation of God, his own people, reject the gospel? And Is that a problem? And then the secondary problem of all the Gentiles that are kind of flooding in, does something different happen here? Uh, What what do we make of all this? And I think that's the, the kind of beating heart of Paul through these chapters. But here he brings this, he says, there's a mystery that's been revealed. And of course, the word mystery means that there's something that Paul has received as, as new revelation, and he's, he's telling it, right? This is a, it's not that there's a mystery that's going to be unwrapped later. It's that we have the solution now. We have this, this light now from God, this mystery. And he mentions that earlier. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. This back up in verse 25. Um, and be unaware of this mystery, brethren, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then, as we talked about, the anticipation of, of, of Israel being converted into Christ Jesus. Uh, the fullness of them and, and life from the dead and all the things that Paul seems to hint at here. I think that as we read the word mystery, we might think that Paul has all this mapped out and knows exactly what God's going to do. I think that's a mistake. I don't think Paul has it all mapped out and knows exactly what God's going to do. God's given him an inkling. He's given him an understanding of what the plan is and that there's a hardness upon Israel, that the Gentiles should flood in, and as the Gentiles come in, that that would provoke Israel to jealousy, that they would come in, and so all Israel would be saved. And so he summarized and saying, well, God has condemned all, that he may have mercy on all. Is that some kind of universalistic text? Does that mean everyone's condemned and everyone's saved? No. Learn to read. Right? We're talking about this particular deal of the Jews, the people groups, as God's dealing with unfolding his salvation among the nations and Israel. And if we go back to Gen- or Romans chapter 3, let me read it because it's worth it. This is like a lifetime text of mine as well, uh, because it shows us that we, we, we want to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We want to make ourselves not so bad. And then we look through the word of God and it's like, oh, it's not like that. It's not like that. So look at Romans chapter 3, a handful of verses here, and think of the Jew-Gentile issue that that, that he's picking up in chapter 11, but it goes all the way back to the beginning here. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Uh, Any better off than the Gentiles is the question. No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. So, okay, that's bad news. It's worse than you think, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Behold, humanity. Behold yourself, and behold myself. This is where God plucks us from. This kind of degradation, this kind of wickedness, this kind of hard-heartedness, this kind of rebellion against God. That's where we're at in Adam. Okay? That's all of us. That's each one of us. No good at all before God. So should God just disregard us? Should God just condemn us all to hell? He certainly could righteously do that. But behold the grace of God and the kindness that he sends his son to redeem wicked sinners like this to make them his very own sons and daughters in the kingdom. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Have you ever noticed, like, if, you, if someone comes accusing you, your mouth starts going and giving all kinds of reasons why you're not as bad or, you, you know, they misunderstood or justifying yourself? The law comes to us and says, stop talking. You're guilty before a holy God. And that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. Sidestep it, ignore it, run around and play football, do what you want. But the fact of the matter is that everyone is condemned before God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And the same thing then goes on when we move back into Romans chapter 11, where Paul's saying, hey, there's this mystery going on in history about the way God is dealing with salvation and, and saving the world, which has always been the plan, all the way back to Abraham, that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, and the nations would be blessed through him. Well, here we're talking about it. It's Jesus, man. It's the Messiah, that son of Abraham. And see how he saves the Gentiles, the idolaters who were far off, who knew nothing of God's covenants, nothing of the commonwealth of Israel, those were all gifts given to one nation. All the other nations left in darkness, yet he shines the light on those nations and then hardens Israel. And as the nations come, then that provokes Israel. And God uses that. So, notice how God, will just say simply, uses sin. It's the hardness. It's the rebellion of Israel. And that rebellion's apex is what? The murder of Jesus. The murder of the Son of God. The one who God sent to them. Uh, like, remember in the, in the parable, say, hey, you know, he sent all the prophets, and we beat them, and we just, you know, despised them, and killed some of them. But hey, this time he sent his son. If we whack him, the whole vineyard's ours. Well, there's the apex of the wickedness of, of Israel. It's not even in the, in, in, although it's the same sort of thing, the persecution of these early Christians, and the, 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 Paul says, they're enemies of the gospel for your sake. Uh, their hardness of heart is a judgment of God upon them that redounds to your benefit, you Gentiles, because the, the gospel has come to you. So listen, then, and then as, as the gospel comes to the Gentiles, so then it would provoke the Jews to jealousy that they should come. And we have this pulled together here in Romans 11. 
For just as at one time you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So we're kind of capturing the whole of this book of Romans and the gospel that Paul's preaching. There's some very bad news that the good news comes to inform us about. The bad news is we're wicked sinners, the lot of us, every one of us. And we can look back at our own lives individually and say, yep, confirmed. Put that one down. Um, even, in, even, in my, even in my Christian life, as trying to serve the Lord, there are most points. There are points of wickedness. There are points of rebellion against God, let alone before the Spirit of God. You know, some of us are that way where we grew up outside the church and knew nothing of Christ and can look back at that time and say, yep, I was lost. I was lost. But some of us can, who grew up in the church can look back just the same and say, yep, I was lost. I had, I had lights all around me. I had the street signs. I had everywhere I knew what to do, but I was like walking around blind, full of my own wickedness. But God overcame that. God knows how to save sinners. In fact, that's kind of what he's in the business of doing. And brother, business is booming. It's the time. It's the time of salvation. Now is the day. This is what God's doing. And he's calling the nations, calling the Gentiles in, and will provoke the Jews because he's consigned all under sin, that he should have mercy on all, because that's how he is. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's how we are. That's what we want for other people. Give them what they deserve. Justice, baby. But God is just. Make no mistake, but God is merciful as well. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and why I cry out to you today, in the name of Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God through the one whom he has sent, through his broken flesh and his poured out blood. That should be your broken flesh and your poured out blood forever before a holy God. But he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to receive us in him, to take that which was filthy and wicked and actually turn us into something glorious and beautiful by his mercy and his love. That's the God we serve. He is rich in mercy. We read that in Psalm 145 as well. Compassionate. So he is. And so he sent his son. Don't let the time go by. Grab on to that son. Grab on to Messiah. He is yours. You are his. Jesus Christ is beautiful. And he is the Savior of the world. God's consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all to hold God's gracious purposes. What about his genuine inscrutability? That's a fun word. Huh? Inscrutability. The other one that's kind of fun in our, in our text is irrevocable or irrevocable. However you want to pronounce that one. I prefer irrevocable because people know what it means. Uh, you start talking about irrevocable and people scratch their heads and they don't recognize how it sounds. But it's fun to say that and kind of leave it in the dust too. So it's up to you. Verse 33. And notice where Paul gets with this, right? It's, uh, as, as, we, as we start to contemplate God, we're, we're at the end of our rope. We're, we're at the end of what we have to like, work with. Uh, the highest powered minds and arts that we have just pale and bow down before, uh, before God. Look at that. And Paul doing that very thing in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's considering the movement of humanity, all of history, God's saving purposes in Israel, the calling of the Gentiles, all of these things. And he finally just steps back and says, wow, 
Behold the wisdom of the knowledge and glory of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who do you think you're dealing with when you're dealing with the Almighty? The old God's rad, he's my dad kind of routine. That's one of the, that's one of the worst things about the church. Is it will minimize the majesty of God in order to maximize our little self-esteem and whatever else we got going on, all our sins and foolishness. The Church of Jesus Christ should be doing this, bowing down before the absolute majesty of God and saying, "Who can search Him out? Who can question His judgments? Who's who paid Him that they should be repaid? Who are we dealing with, Christian? It's hard to preach this stuff because." There aren't words to say. It's the reality of the eternal God and the reality of our own finite and sinfulness, uh, finitude and sinfulness, and all of that that should make us just bow down in wonder and adoration and amazement at God. To worship Him because we can't help it. It's like that with a, uh, a vista or something beautiful. I think beauty itself has this kind of impact where we're drawn out of ourselves and amazed and just gushing because we can't help it. We can't help because that, the thing we're looking at is so beautiful. It's so impressive. It's so astounding that it just draws wonder and awe out of us. Well, that's God preeminently. If we ever are amazed at a sunset or we're amazed at a beer, we're amazed at our wife, and there are all these things to be amazed by, all of that amazement is God. It's His amazement. It's His gift. It's His beauty. It's His glory that we see manifest everywhere. And it's all Him. It's all in Him. And so God's judgments, we don't, we don't look into them. We don't get to figure out and parse it out. Right? Well, like we're reading a, you know, the, a report or something for the Supreme Court, and we kind of read down and say, well, I agree with this, I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, none of that matters anyway. Uh, but it matters even less when we're talking about God Almighty. We don't, we don't press into his judgments and tell him what's what. Did you ever spot God ten bucks for lunch? He's like, man, I forgot my wallet. Uh, say here's ten bucks, just pay it back later. It's like that with God? No. But it's like that with people. We, we operate that way with people, and that's amazing enough. But God's not like that. And Paul's backing up from all this saying, just behold the wonder and amazement that is God. You haven't given him any advice. When you pray, even when you pour your heart out... For an, for an unsaved family member or friend and so on. You're not informing God at all. You haven't counseled God. We counsel each other. Right? I can come up to you and say, I, I got a question. I don't know what to do here. And you can give me wisdom and help me see. And God gives us that kind of blessing together. Do we do that to God? Do we inform Him? Do we counsel Him? Do we help Him out? Give just a little bit of knowledge you might not. This, this might help if you knew this. We think that way, and I think we approach God often that way, and God, again, is exceedingly gracious to deal with us in our foolishness as we talk to Him. But hes that's what He has to deal with. A bunch of fools that He's making wise, that He's giving wisdom and life to, that, that He's redeeming. And even as maybe in our dealing with our littlest children and some of their silliness and you know, watching them not get things or not understand things or think they're informing us, that kind of thing, we can get a glimpse just a little glimpse of what it is to deal with the almighty, unchanging, ultimate, absolute God 
as we pray to him, as we relate to him, as we come into relationship with him. But we should do that knowing that, one, he's absolute and awesome, and two, we add nothing to him, whatever. We don't give to God. He gives to us. And even as we worship God, we lift up our worship and our hearts to the Lord. He's not receiving. He's giving. He's giving to us as we lift up our hearts. He's giving to us as we obey Him. That's His gift to us. It's His grace. It's His glory. He is absolute God, eternal. And we are like a mist that the wind drives away. Or a little puff of smoke that the wind just blows out. That's, that's us. He is eternal and unchanging. And He indeed is inscrutable. We don't look into that and figure it out. We don't comprehend God. The infinite is not comprehended by the finite. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and all that he is. We are finite. We don't comprehend God to begin with. That's just like the word go. And how much more from there? So Christians, behold your God. And as it says in the title, S-D-G, solely, Deo, Gloria. May God alone be glorified because he is the absolute. He's the one. So that leaves for us humility. And as I remember reading Augustine saying, the three main parts of Christianity are humility, humility, humility. There you go. And I think just, just getting a glimpse of God is enough to put us on our faces in abject humility. And whom God raises up, they'll be raised up. That's how God does it. Humble yourself and the mighty hand of God will lift you up. So we have God's gracious purposes on display here in this, in this text. We have genuine inscrutability. We don't get to look into God and figure him out or comprehend him. He is the master. He is the absolute. But we also have this glorious ultimacy, this last verse, which I'll touch on now and hopefully develop more uh, gloriously next Lord's Day. Verse 36, For from him and through him and to him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the bringing together of Paul's doxology, of Paul's worship of God. Here it is. And recognizing that God is the origin, the source of all things. That in him all things hold together and consist and move and live. And that he's the goal or the telos, the purpose of all things as well. So from beginning to end, it's all God. It's all about God manifesting his glory in us, for our benefit, in, he, in the gifts that he gives us, that just manifests his own glory. But first, God's infinitely above all. He is the creator God. There is no God like him. There is no God beside him. There aren't other gods. Sorry, LDS. Sorry, Mormonism. That's what they teach. Right? That God's just one God among all sorts of gods out there, maybe kind of similar. And they all have their own little creative areas. That they, you, know, you go study Mormonism, you find yourself, you're on Mars and Jupiter pretty soon. You're, it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. It's not Christian. And we just warn you on that, that this kind of text right here shows. No, God is ultimate in, in, in a league absolutely of his own. He's not one among many. He alone is God. There's one God, creator God, and he's the one we have to do with. And he's the one who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the great father of our Lord Jesus. So, God is... Singular, He is of Himself, He's unto Himself, He's eternal and unchanging. He is absolute and ultimate God, not one among many, as per LDS and other Hindus and other forms of thought. But also in the sense of the, maybe the, a dominant way of thinking that's 
in our world, which is naturalism. This, this world just kind of continues on based upon natural laws, whatever they are and wherever they came from. Uh, but there they are, and we just kind of truck along and move along. And even if we want to like kind of add God to that, and say, oh, God just kind of made these natural laws, and, and uh, you know, we just look at nature and learn from it. But all of this is God's. He's absolute. He's the one who created creation, and he did it how he said. He did it in six days to the glory of his name and rested the seventh. And set that as a pattern for us, his people, down through the long, long centuries to learn how to rest in addition to learn how to work. So there's a, there's a certain naturalism that is certainly the case for atheists. Say, oh, no, there's no, no, no reason to look above nature or outside of what we can see and taste and touch and feel. Uh, this is all we have. And say, so, well, we do get to see and touch and face and feel because... The God who created all this gave us those senses, gave us the ability to engage with what he's made. God is the ultimate in all these things. We have different ways of kind of shifting him off and making him not the ultimate and not the absolute. But the text says, from God. From God. So that's a, you know, out of God, from God is a preposition. We have three different prepositions here. Right? We have three little prepositional phrases uh, that help us understand a great deal. There's a lot of weight in those, in those little words, those little prepositions about what God is revealing himself to be. For from him are all things. And the Greek is taponta. All things. Just, it's kind of a stark little way of putting it. Uh, it says from God, through God, to God, taponta. All things. Everything. Boom. Right? All that's made, all that he's created. Now clearly, just as a note, God's not from himself in the sense that he created himself. For that would be absurd. I hope you get that. God's not a self-creating God. Uh, God is. He exists. He is who He is eternally and unchangeably. He's uncreated. Everything else is creation. Everything else comes from Him. All things are from Him. He is the one who has existence. In fact, He is existence. And if we exist... We exist because he shares that existence with us in his creation. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, which is certainly from origins, that all things come from God, to the second preposition of him and through him, by him, by God, all things are. God preserves us. We kind of forget about that, right? We just figure we eat food and get our sleep and move on, and, you know, God's just made these our bodies to take care of themselves, and we just kind of move on, but it's all, it's all God. God preserves you. God takes the food you eat and makes it a blessing to your body that you should digest it and use it and be empowered by it. Did you think that was some kind of natural process? That it just occurs? Or is it like every other process we see, by God's design and by God's blessing? That's oftentimes, why before a meal we say, God, bless this food. Bless it to our nourishment. Bless us by this nourishment to your service. It's God who gives us the food. It's Him, it's God who gives us the nourishment by the food and by the drink and by the sleep. It's all God's mercy to us. Again, we tend to fall off into naturalistic explanations or thinking about it in naturalistic sort of ways, as opposed to, as a Christian, that God is active in all these things, giving and blessing and building His kingdom, even through the very food that we eat and are sustained by once again that we read in Psalm 145 the eyes of all look to God and when he opens his hand they're satisfied when he gives that they're satisfied I thought that was just a natural process of animals eating foods yeah sure it is but behind all of that 
is the God who gives. He who gives all things to everybody. And very few of us stop to say, thanks. Wow, thanks God. Thanks for giving these things that we might attribute to Mother Nature. That, by the way, is like one of my absolute favorites. Uh, listening to like grown adults talk about Mother Nature. Um, I want to kick them. You know, I, think that I really do. I like have to restrain myself. Thinking, you're, you're not going to ascribe to God these things. You're going to make up something we all know is made up, like a little child, and we'll attribute this to Mother Nature. I think, wow, are we grown-ups or are we in kindergarten? Um, I'll let you decide on that one. So from God, the origin of all things. When you think of John chapter 1, let me read that so you can see. This isn't just tied into God's simpliciter, which is to say God in himself, but God has revealed in his Son. Because God has revealed himself in his Son. And our salvation is in that Son. Our understanding of God himself is in Jesus Christ. Okay, it's important that we recognize it's not just God of himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God has He sent his Son, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the very living Word of God. So the beginning of John, the famous beginning of the Gospel of John, listen to how it goes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Through the Word, through the Logos of God, the second person of the Trinity, all things are made. So are you thinking, does the Bible teach that Jesus is divine? Yeah, right there, among a thousand other places as well. That he is the creative agent of the triune God. Through the Son, all things come to pass. In him was life. Oh, okay. Life is in Jesus, and he gives it away. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so we have Jesus here, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God, the Logos of God, being the agent by which all things come. All things are from God. See, from God's simplicity, God in his triunity, in his, in, his, in, his, in his oneness. But God has expressed by the incarnation of the Son, by whom all things were made. And then similarly here in Colossians chapter 1, particularly verse 17 here, we'll all read into it, starting at verse 15. He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. That's exactly what I mean. We don't see God. We don't interact with God that way. He sent His Son that we should see and know Him through the flesh and blood of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's all angelic powers and, and that we know nothing about. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For from God and through God are all things. That's exactly what's being said of Jesus Christ here. He's the origin of all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the one that makes this thing all stick together. You ever tried to make something and it just doesn't hang together? Like everything I make does that. Everything I put my hands to falls apart. Often quick. You know, think of a sandcastle. You form this thing. It's like, yeah, it doesn't take very long before it just falls apart. How does this whole thing hang together for all these long centuries? How do the stars continually to move their courses through the sky all of these many long centuries, all the way back to the ancient Babylonians who were up there looking at it going, staring at the same stars that we're staring at tonight? How does it all hang together? Oh, it just does. Right? We just take it all for granted. 
Well, we do take it for granted, but we know it's God who makes it hang together through Jesus Christ. And even the covenant with Noah helps us understand that. He preserves this place. He preserves this order, which is what cosmos means. He preserves his cosmos so that Christ should have dominion of it. So that Jesus should come and take dominion of this which is under the prince of the power of the air, under rebellion against God. He'll have his salvation through Jesus Christ. For of him and through him and unto him, or to him, to Ponta, all things, all of it. Something we've lost in our thinking oftentimes, although I think we retain it as Christians because we have eschatology, which is to say we know that there's a doctrine of things to come or end, end things, that God has a plan for the end of human history. And so there's a, there's a sense in which we're looking forward quite a bit, which saves us from, I think, what the world's fallen into, which is there is no teleology. There is no doctrine of what the purpose of things are. Right? If you go back to Aristotle and the ancient Greeks, they say an acorn has a teleological purpose to become an oak tree. It's not just here, it's, it's, it's got a purpose, it's going somewhere, and they can see in the thing itself the purpose of it. We call that teleology. What's the purpose? What's the end goal of the thing? God is the telos of all things. He is the purpose of all things. All things are in Him. They're from Him, they exist by Him, and they go unto Him. Jesus Christ is the one either to save you and humanity, or he's the one to condemn you and humanity. God has put salvation and judgment in the hands of his Son. Again, he's the telos of all things. So here's the question. Will you look to Jesus Christ and be saved, resting in him alone, that he's righteous and you're not? He's good and you're not. He's faithful and you're not. Resting in him, the one who gave himself up to death, the cursed death of a cross, that God should raise him to newness of life. Or will that same man, Jesus the Christ of God, come, and when he comes, you will want to hide under the rocks. Because you know you now have to deal with a just judge and you're unrighteous. We're all unrighteous. Each one of us. Every one of us. The question is only this. Will you be judged by the triune God in the hands of Jesus Christ for your unrighteousness? Or has Jesus himself been judged in your place? And Christian, if you can say, Christ is mine and I'm his, then praise the Lord and give thanks to him for of him and through him and to him are all things. And God has been pleased to bring you into his salvation, to make you one of his elects from all eternity. And you will scratch your head and say, God, why me? What's the deal with any of this, God? And all we're left to do is say thanks. Thank you, God. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's the proper response. But if that's not your response, I tell you, watch out. I tell you, watch out. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I warn you in Jesus' name to flee the wrath to come. The just wrath of God. How's that for a summary of the book of Romans? Here is Jesus, the Christ of God. For of him and to him, through him are all things. Flee to him. Live in him. Love the Lord your God in Jesus Christ, the mediator. And look for his judgment. And Christian, when that judgment comes, we will rejoice in it, even though the world will 
wish they could flee in terror from the one to judge, but there'll be nowhere to go. He will judge. And hell is real, as is heaven and the new heavens and new earth in Jesus Christ. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Behold it. And say, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Amen.